0: Welcome to the Relatively Damaged Podcast by Damaged Parents, where crushed, distorted, splintered people come to learn maybe, just maybe, we're all a little bit damaged. Someone once told me it's safe to assume 50% of the people I meet are struggling and feel wounded in some way. I would venture to say it's closer to 100% every one of us is either currently struggling or has struggled with something that made us feel less than. Like we aren't good enough. We aren't capable. We are relatively damaged. And that's what we're here to talk about. In my ongoing investigation of the damaged self, I want to better understand how others view their own challenges. Maybe it's not so much about the damage. Maybe it's about our perception and how we deal with it. There's a deep commitment to becoming who we are meant to be. How do you do that? How do you find balance after a damaging experience? My hero is the damaged person, the one who faces seemingly insurmountable odds to come out on the other side whole. Those who stare directly into the face of adversity with unyielding persistence to discover their purpose. These are the people who inspire me to be more fully me, not in spite of my trials, but because of them. Let's hear from another hero. Today's topic includes sensitive material which may not be appropriate for children. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as advice. The opinions expressed here were strictly those of the person who gave them. Today we're going to talk with Nicole Yeats. She has many roles in her life. Daughter, survivor of a devastating motorcycle accident that caused a traumatic brain injury. Rehabilitation counselor, best-selling author, and more. We'll talk about how she died on the road, her mom believed in her ability to come back from a vegetative state, how she healed, and believes her purpose is to give hope to as many people as she can so they may find their purpose. Let's talk. If you want to share your relatively damaged story of struggle and how you found hope, Visit us at DamagedParents.com and complete the contact form. Welcome, Nicole, to the Relatively Damaged podcast. Thank you for being here today.
1: Thank you for having me, Angela.
0: You're welcome. So we're here today to talk about struggles and overcoming them. You answered an ad, and you said you had a struggle to share. And my understanding is that, that you had a traumatic brain injury, which has left you with some significant disabilities.
1: Yeah, well, they're permanent disabilities, certainly. Basically, when I was 16 years old, I had a motorcycle accident. It was in New Zealand, and in New Zealand at that time, you were able to get your licence at age 15,
0: Mm.
1: which is crazy, but it's not that anymore, it's 18. But... I got my first tax return at 15, and it wasn't enough to buy a car, so I bought a motorbike. And, um, yeah, it lasted about six months before having a, a hit and run motorcycle accident. The guy left me on the road for dead. I died on the road but was resuscitated. Uh, died another two times after that in hospital. And my prognosis was expect death or life in the vegetative stage.
0: Wow. I bet your family and friends were terrified.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Especially my mother. It's just mum and I. Um, basically, my father died when I was quite young. So basically, mum and I were it. So that was obviously very traumatic for her. Mm-hmm. I remained in a coma for another three weeks. Mm. And, you know, it was touch and go for a lot of that. And when I woke up, I couldn't walk, talk, my body was so damaged, my brain was so damaged that it couldn't even regulate its own temperature. I had no awareness of bladder control. Basically, really, truly had to start from ground zero to relearn everything.
0: So you couldn't walk, you couldn't talk, you couldn't control your bladder. And what was the awareness like though
1: in when you woke up what yeah what was that like yeah I wish I could answer that with clarity Angela but (laughs) I have amnesia around about the year or two before the accident and the year or two after the accident Mm -hmm. are pretty hazy I have complete blanks like apparently a year after the accident I went to see a Dire Straits concert and had a marvelous time (laughs) I have no memory of it (laughs)
0: Okay. So was there a point, was there some point where you realized that you didn't know that you didn't know? And now you were starting to remember.
1: Look, I remembered people like, mm-hmm. you know, I knew who my mother was, you know, I knew who my friends were. Sometimes, if I hadn't seen someone for a long time, I might get a little bit mixed up, but right. I knew those basics. I just didn't know. I didn't know my way around. Like when I got out of hospital, uh-huh. um, Going home for the first time, I looked in my wardrobe and asked mum whose clothes they were. Mm. I didn't know my way around the city I grew up in. Though I didn't know um, from a brain injury perspective, I didn't know social cues. I had to relearn social cues. Social um, cues like what? Well, you know, when you're talking to someone and mm-hmm. they zone out because they're totally not interested in what you're saying, right. I would not understand those sorts of social cues. My frontal lobe damage was meant my filter had been removed. So I just said whatever came into my head, which could be embarrassing or rude. And I would have no idea that it was like that.
0: (laughs) Oh, okay. So, kind of like the autistic person, where they. Okay. Yeah. I'm trying, just want to understand. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Like a three year old, basically. Okay has no idea about those sorts of intricacies of communication and so really I mean it it was going back to a toddler I had to learn to be toilet trained again I had to basically start from about there
0: now was that I'm trying to I want to dial into the feelings and what I'm trying Mm. to to get at is it is And it's a point blank question, I guess, is was that, did you even feel, did you feel embarrassed? Did you have enough awareness to feel embarrassed or do you see where I'm going?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't. And I relied heavily on feedback. (laughs) It was so mum, especially she would afterwards go on the (laughs) call. Really?
0: Okay. So she would tell you. Yeah, if yeah. something wasn't socially acceptable, and yes. then you could make adjustments from there. And that's
1: it. Yeah. And then when I went back to school, because I missed, I, I had my accident on the 19th of June, 1987. Mm-hmm. So I missed all of the rest of that year of school and um, started back in 1988, so February 1988. So getting back into, um, I guess, a social environment. That school is. I learned things mostly by uh, trial and error, mostly trial. Oh, (laughs) no.
0: Do you have a story you want to share with us that you remember?
1: (laughs) Oh, look, it would be things like if someone had come to school and let's say they had a pimple on their face Mm -hmm. and they'd gone to a lot of trouble to cover that pimple up. So they look nice for school. Mm-hmm. I would be the one to point it out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then what would happen?
1: And then I would see that the person was really embarrassed or felt really uncomfortable, or you know. So I guess I I learnt along the way. <laughs> oh <laughs> like, no! <laughs>
0: so do you think that? I mean, they most of them probably knew you had the accident and that you were coming back, right?
1: Or no? Well, yes, yes. Look, my my friends, you know, when I was in hospital, my friends were amazing. You know, they visited me. They participated in, you know, doing things like recording how I was when they visited, um, whether I was awake or asleep or and being a part of doing the exercises to keep my limbs going. But then when I got out of hospital and the realization of my disabilities, you know, I walked with a limp. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't drive anymore. I didn't know my way around the city. I was a responsibility. Mm. Um, you know, gone was the free-going teenager who challenged all boundaries. I couldn't do that anymore. So that was a really hard adjustment. That was probably the hardest part of everything for me. Was there was the going back to the altered reality. Mm-hmm. where I had to learn to adjust to these disability issues. I couldn't remember anything. Like I, my short-term memory was atrocious. The amount of times I turned up to school and forgot tampons, you know, when I had my period, I had to go to the office and ask for them. It could be embarrassing, those memory issues. But also from a learning perspective, you know, I found whereas before I was an average student, but I didn't have to try hard at all. I never studied. I just cruised through school, really, whereas I couldn't do that anymore. And my friends didn't cope with that. Well, most of them, I should say. Most of them, majority of them didn't cope with that, and they distanced themselves from me. I didn't understand it at the time. I was a teenager. They were teenagers. Yeah. And that actually sent me into a really deep depression. I became suicidal. I began to wish I hadn't lived in that. So
0: you felt super alone.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, I really did.
0: And these people that you thought you were able going to be able to depend on couldn't be there for you in the way that you needed them to be there for you.
1: Yeah, yeah, they That's they sad. did. I'm sure they didn't understand it either. Ironically, many years later, many of us have become friends again.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. I'm no longer that dependent teenager.
0: Yeah, I think being a teenager is so hard and I couldn't imagine having that happen in the midst of that of the teenage years when because not only are you struggling but all your friends are struggling around you to even figure out who they are and now you needed a little more support and they're still trying to figure out who they are so it makes sense to me that it would be really hard to not lose them because they don't even know who they are or what they stand for, or what their values
1: are. Does that, yeah. is that kind of? Absolutely. And i changed too. I've gone from a shy kind of, you know, I was the sort of teenager that if I went to a party, I'd only stick with the group of friends I knew because I wasn't confident enough to sort of go beyond that. So I went from that sort of person through to a person with no filter that was really loud and inappropriate. And <laughs> yeah, so it was, it was a difficult time for us all. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: It sounds Mm -hmm. like it. So now you're a rehabilitation counselor and a best-selling author. So traveling from having the traumatic brain injury to that, that sounds like a pretty amazing journey. And how did you do that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, there's lots of variants to that answer, Angela. I had a great support team and my mother. Mm-hmm. She never stopped believing in me, even when the doctors recommended turning life support off because I was going to be in a vegetative state if I lived. Her response was, you don't know my daughter. Mm. Um, so, yeah, she was the biggest um, support that I had. But I also had a great allied health team. So when my mother found my suicidal poetry, she went to the GP. They sent me to a psychologist and he literally saved my life. How so?
0: When someone is in that place of suicide or wanting or even suicidal ideation, right? And you went to this, to the psychologist, you said psychologist, right? Psychologist. Yeah. Yeah. And how Did he, and you attribute that to him saving, helping save your life. How did that work? I mean, did he help you think? What about that helped you?
1: Okay. Now that it's my book, Holding On To Hope.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: That's literally what Richard Wheeler did. He gave me hope. Mm -hmm. So I was hearing amongst all of the adjustment to disability, rejection from friends, you know, learning everything all over again. There was also this sense of helplessness and the feedback from doctors, you can't, you won't, you'll never, Mm -hmm. all these negatives. Um, All of those factors collided. And I was also on epilepsy medication because I developed epilepsy from the accident. and. Basically, when I went to Richard, he was using quite progressive techniques at the time, which are well utilised now, things like meditation and visualisation. So I would visualise my brain as a bunch of spaghetti or string or worms or whatever was the flavour of the day for me. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd imagine them in this mangled mess and put them together, put it together in an orderly fashion. Um, And that was my visualization sort of technique, which I would do at home as well to try and heal my brain. He gave me tools that I could use that were easy to use. I wanted to be a psychologist before my accident. And, you know, I still had that desire because when the doctor said, you can't, you won't, you'll never, that was for me like a red flag to a bull. I'm going to
0: prove you wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't believe none of that. <laughs> Which is actually really surprising because a lot of people, when they become disabled, I mean, there's that sheer devastation and depression, and like you were saying, that help- hopelessness. So it's interesting that for you, like that, no, that no, you can't do this to you mm. is like, want to bet?
1: <laughs> yeah, it was a passionate driver. Well, years, yeah. Angela, for years. And I hadn't actually realised how much of a, how much I'd been holding on to that and, and I guess the anger about those sorts of diagnoses that I held on to for a lot of years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, you know, it was a driver, which was great, mm-hmm. but I actually sent the neurosurgeon who gave some of those negative prognosis a copy of my tra- university transcript and, um, you know, it was just, it was a nice letter saying, you know, thank you for saving my life and thank you, you know, for your care of me. But, you know, my request is that when you're making these prognoses, don't just base it in anatomy and physiology, because there's lots of other factors, you know, there's your, your internal beliefs, your personality, your support systems. There's, there's lots of drivers that contribute to that outcome, not just anatomy and physiology. And he did respond to that letter and nicely, you know, and when I got that letter back from him, it was like the anger left my shoulders. Hmm. It was quite amazing. But going back to the psychology and my psychologist didn't say, no, you can't do psychology or you couldn't. He gave me an IQ test. Okay. And he said, look, you know, Nicole, it's, it's not going to be easy. It's not impossible.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You have to work really hard, but you could do it. Right. That was hope. Yeah. That's why holding on to hope.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, that makes a lot of, I mean, it's just so easy to lose hope and then find yourself in, in that hopelessness and even learned helplessness, if you will. I think it's, yeah. it, it's so important to give hope. Mm. And how is that best done, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, you don't want to set people up for failure. And I I get that it's a tricky balance and, you know, doctors don't have an easy job, but there is a balance. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: it took me 15 years to get the confidence to go to university. But, you know, I did what I thought I could. And, you know, that was to start off with beauty therapy. I trained as a beauty therapist, when I was 20. What's a beauty therapist? Beauty therapist is, you know, when you go into a salon for facials and waxing and okay. I, don't, I don't know what you call them over there, but uh, yeah, in the US it's um, escheticians.
0: So they, oh, yes, they do yeah. the face, waxing. Yeah. Then we have the hairstylist that cuts, you know, the, for, for the hair. And I'm not yeah. sure if there's anything else. I think the eschatician do the Big long eyelashes now, too. Yeah,
1: that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And pedicures and manicures and yep. all of that. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I worked, I trained as a beauty therapist and, you know, I had to work really hard to retain all that information in my memory to pass the course. And uh, in, actually, in going back a bit, in my last year of high school, I actually did a psychology course at night school. hmm. So it was an introduction to psychology. It was just to sort of see if I'd like it and test the water a little bit. And I learned memory strategies in that course that I use still. Mm. And that was kind of, I guess, that course and having that knowledge or that education was about me going from all these bits of paper everywhere to remind me of things to actually using my brain as a memory strategy.
0: So, so this was in a psychology course and hmm. then and was it part teaching that or was it because you took that course you were challenged to figure out how to do that?
1: Well I just I learned I learned about memory you know I learned about the difference between short-term memory and long-term memory and working memory and those sorts of things but then there was scientific evidence about you know, how much short-term memory can actually hold in the average person and ways to actually make sure to an attempt these strategies actually to enable the short-term memory to hold more information. So the strategies were about that sort of thing and enabling the short-term memory to hold more information. So I basically took that learning and applied it to my real life. and wow. um, Yeah, so used those strategies in my everyday life. And now they're just a part of my normal routine. I'm probably the most organized person you'll ever meet because that's now (laughs) how it needs to be. (laughs) 33 years later, my short-term memory is still crap.
0: (laughs) Right. No, I totally understand that. For me, organization is an absolute must have and it has to be easy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, now I'm running a a occupational sort of occupational health business. So I'm a rehabilitation counselor. I work in the occupational rehabilitation space. So people who've been injured at work, whether that be physical or psychological injuries, Mm -hmm. I've, I've written a book. So I'm also branching out a little bit with specialising in brain injury rehab. Wow. And, yeah, so there's a lot of things, a lot of elements in that. So I can't rely on my short-term memory <laughs> to <laughs> do everything I need to in that space. So that's why it's, you know, it's so important to have strategies around memory, and that's something that I teach in my workshops. I do webinars, online webinars. I'm also just in the process of just about launching a brand new memory management tool called retink 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 so that retink is a combination of rethink and tinkering you know Mm. when you tinker with something you're modifying it improving it and rethinking because after a brain injury you do have to rethink everything yeah I think with
0: any with any injury, if it's debilitated you, it's on any level
1: you have to Absolutely. Yes, rethink correct. everything. Yep, for <laughs> sure. So uh retink is specifically designed for people with memory issues. Okay. And it's an organizational tool, you know, for appointments and tasks. It has inbuilt reminders in it, so you don't even have to set reminders, it just does it. Oh wow. It has brain training games in there to help improve memory and visual spatial awareness and concentration. It it has blog built into it as well. So people get educated on brain health and strategies, tools and resources. And it's a communication linking tool for the brain injured person or what I like to call the retinker. If they're using retink, they're now retinkers. Right. <laughs> and they're support people. So if they've got an appointment that they need to go to, they can actually invite their support person, whether that be a family member, carer, support worker, into that appointment so they can both see it in their calendar.
0: Oh, wow. That's really cool. Because like you were saying, I would think most brain injuries impact memory on some level. So I would think it would also fit in the dementia world also. Uh, And it sounds like there's like that came to you because of experiences you had. Mm. And it was because you failed or you missed appointments or you did this or that. And, And then it's like, gosh, I really, it sounds like you took that, gosh, I really wish I had something that helped with this and said, Okay, I'm sure you needed to enlist help and assistance in creating it. Um, oh yes. It, it so that other people might not have to have such I don't know that a bumpy ride.
1: Such a struggle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I it's already hard. Goal. I really my goal is to help. Anyone reach their highest potential after injury mm-hmm. that really is the driver of, of all of this. I would love for people not to have to take 33 years to figure out some of the things that I did,
0: <laughs> right? So that if you can pass along those tools now, mm. then everyone's better off,
1: yeah, yeah, and everyone deserves to reach their highest potential no matter what the potential is, right.
0: Now you said you work in occupational therapy, right? That's right, yep, yep, okay the, uh,
1: occupational you know work the work area, so the occupational industry here in Australia, basically we have an insurance we have a few insurance systems that can cover if you have a work injury, okay, and uh yeah, so whether someone you know is a bus driver or they've been to the front line in Afghanistan. Whether it be psychological or physical, yeah, I assist those people. My specialty is when they can't go back to the job they used to do because of their injury barriers, I help them with vocational counseling and help them to find another pathway that is more suitable.
0: Now, what happens, I mean, I'm just interested in in what happens over, over there is if let's say they're both their hands are are useless or mm-hmm. they there's That lack of capacity there, obviously so much takes our hands. What kind of thing do you do then? Or how do you help them then? If you want to share your relatively damaged story of struggle and how you found hope, visit us at damagedparents.com and complete the contact form. Now, what happens, I mean, I'm just interested in in what happens over, over there, is if let's say they're both their hands are are useless or mm-hmm. they there's that lack of capacity there. Obviously so much takes our hands. What kind of thing do you do then? Or how do you help them then?
1: Yeah. So look, there's amazing assistive technology available now. So there's always those sorts of interventions that we can look at doing, you know, so We have an allied health team where I actually work, you know, as far as the, I do contracting for rehabilitation counselling and, but I work with a team of allied health professionals. So we have physios, we have occupational therapists, we have psychologists, rehabilitation counsellors, employment consultants, and we work as a team together. So we each take on our own specialised area. So if a client is, needs new employment services, because they can't go back to their old job, then they're more likely to be referred to me. Mm -hmm. If someone has a physical injury and they've got to go back to the same job but there might be some workplace adaptations that need to happen, um, it's more likely to go to an occupational therapist. Yeah, so that's how we work.
0: What have you noticed as far as like there's a huge emotional side of becoming disabled or Mm. losing capacity? And yes. you woke up to it, if you will. <laughs> yes, literally. <laughs> and I, it happens like in two seconds, one minute, one moment, everything's normal. And the next moment, it's not. Mm. And, and it takes so much. It seems to me it would take so much longer to process that on an emotional level to be able to get to the point of being okay with those new limitations and even finding value in those limitations. It seems to me like you found value in your limitations. How does someone else do that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, look, it, it does. It took a long time. Look, I think hindsight is a valuable thing. And you know, what I can offer in that space now is that reaching out to those support networks doesn't mean you've failed. Right. It, You know, when after my accident, like there was a brain injury support group that mum mm-hmm. would go to, but I refused
0: because mm. so I didn't
1: want to be like that. Uh, and I didn't want to acknowledge that I was like that. I spent a number of years in denial and trying to fight the reality of my altered reality Yeah, That probably delayed some of my rehabilitation because, you know, if I'd gone to those brain injury support groups, I would have learned from other people about what's working for them. I wouldn't have had to figure out so much on my own. So I would say embrace everything that is available in the rehabilitation space. Also, it's not about going to appointments and relying on the health professional to do the exercises with you you've got to do it at home too. You know, the more you put into your own rehab, the more that you're going to see progress. Um, Isn't that the truth? Yeah, you know, you, you've really <laughs> got to be motivated and, and focused on your goals, you know. It's, goals are so important. Having, you know, where do I want to be? All this rehabilitation is happening, but having a goal to reach for will keep you motivated and on track. It's really important.
0: So what do you tell someone if somebody comes in and they're in occupational therapy and they don't, they can't see forward Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: and they're barely making it there? What do you tell them?
1: Look, I work from a strengths perspective. Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, I might do a transferable skills analysis with them and look at all the the skills that they currently have and how they may be transferable to other areas. That's one thing I might do to actually Mm -hmm. start pulling out the strengths and having a positive conversation, not just a conversation about the barriers and limitations and so forth, but looking from that strengths perspective. Mm -hmm. I might also look at their hobbies and interests. You know, what can we start there? Is there something... That they want to learn is there, you know, a hobby? Do they want to learn knitting? Do they want? To... <laughs> we can turn that into mm-hmm. a career sometimes, yeah, or a job at the very least.
0: I like that perspective. Okay, so I've been asking because, of course, I have a disability. <laughs> <laughs> got those questions? I'm not going to deny it. So I have complex regional pain syndrome in both hands. Um, okay, the left one is locked in this shape. It's not going anywhere. And the Mm -hmm. right one is a very limited range of motion. And basically got use of my finger and my thumb in the States. They say one, one thing that you don't get is a person to help. Right. So if you go to a job, they'll give you what they call accommodations, but those accommodations don't include another person. So for instance, to do the podcast, I've got to, I can do the interviews and, and talk and everything. And then I've got a daughter who's doing the editing and mm-hmm. the, believe it or not, the caregivers enjoy it too sometimes and they want to do it too, yeah. <laughs> which is super helpful because I just can't do, I, I can't. Um, yeah. physically do the task I can talk to people and I mm-hmm. enjoy it now I also heard you talking about the the memory issue and that's also a problem because I have significant chronic pain so um, yeah. even you know I can't take notes during our our conference uh, <laughs> my interviews right yes. so I have to hold it and sometimes I lose that question and something else pops up and I just have to let it go Mm -hmm. I, I, if I hold too hard, then I miss the conversation. Um, Yeah. But so what is it like over there? I mean, let's say you had somebody come in and, and I have it in my legs a little bit too. Somebody comes in, in my situation and you said you're in Australia, right? So what do you guys do with that person?
1: Okay. Look, let me give you an example of a lady that I used to do personal care work for in my last year of university. She had severe cerebral palsy as a result of a blood clot when she was born. Mm -hmm. She couldn't move, well, she didn't have control over any part of her body really, except her head. And to some degree, she could navigate with the her feet on the wheelchair, you know, if she needed to sort of move the wheelchair over on tiles, for example, where it was easy to move, she might be able to do that, but it would depend on the day. She worked full-time. She relied on a roster of staff like me to do everything that we would do for ourselves, clean our ears, brush our teeth, make dinner, clean the house, dress ourselves, get her out of bed, literally everything she relied on a roster of staff to do. But with the amazing technology that we have, she was able to operate a computer. So she had a headpiece with this, what do you call it? A a phasey is a problem too. Uh, Like a stick that came out the top of her head. It was a plastic wand type thing. And her computer was adapted so that she could use it with this wand. And she Mm -hmm. would use her head and you know, with the keyboard and she was a disability researcher.
0: Oh, nice. Yeah. It sounds like she ended up having to create her own company, if you will. Cause I don't see going to a job job. I'm going to say that. Yeah. no, She was a government job. worker.
1: She worked for the government. She was. Yeah. She was an employee.
0: And so they provided all of that assistance for her.
1: Yeah. That is fantastic. <laughs> it is, well, I'm not sure that they provided everything. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if, yeah, like I think the adapted technology, yes, that like, right. the computer um, and at home she had one as well that she could use. So that would have been at her cost. But she did set up a company that employed me and other Mm -hmm. staff that were her support workers. Her and another couple of people with a disability set up this company to provide 24 seven, around the clock care for people with disabilities. And yeah, so she she was amazing. Yeah, she's passed now, but.
0: She sounds mm. amazing. I'm just intrigued as to how it worked. (laughs) Yeah. and I know it's a little <laughs> off topic
1: <laughs> sorry about that it's all right no it's, it's, we, it's all about you know overcoming barriers that's so much of what I do in my work and I've had to do it for myself literally right. and when I was ever presented with a challenge or it, it's not I like, can't it's how
0: Yeah, I think that's been the frustrating thing for me is they'll give you what I've been told is assistive technology per se, but having a helper on the property waiting to help me or to help do the computer work or anything is just not an option out here. So yeah,
1: yeah. But look at you you're still that hasn't stopped you look at you you're still doing podcasts and you figured out how to do that and only recently <laughs> doesn't matter you did it but I did it yeah
0: yeah so right you know so so in that I I think because I've got frustrated I'm like why do I keep waiting for them to figure it out I <laughs> why it doesn't make it you know it's like how instead it became okay what what needs to happen. And maybe part of it was that the kids were old enough to want to help and that they were interested. And the Ooh. other one is I've got, I realized that the caregivers that I have are willing to assist in my disability, which gets into all kinds of other problems in the United States with laws and guide, the guideline. Basically, they're not supposed to help with my disability as far as caregivers go. So that's super Mm. disappointing and and Mm. hurtful. But luckily, I've had really, there's only one company that I had that was not helpful. And I got rid of them because they told me. I couldn't have the kids in the car. I said, well, what if I want to get that cobweb? Well, we can't help with your disability and you need a housekeeper if you want somebody to get a cobweb. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? And then I'm like, okay, there's big problems here that need to be fixed.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like there's a a disconnect for sure.
0: Yeah, there really is. And so I actually learned a lot of that. And then I thought what needs to happen is we need to bring people together to realize that we're all similar and we're all struggling, all of Mm. us every single one of us. And then, you know, I was praying and meditating and and the podcast plan came about and I was reading, um, I think it was originals by Adam Grant. And in it, they were talking about like the women's suffrage movement in the United States Mm. and how at first they went around yelling justice, 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 and no one wanted to hear them and they had to tag on to prohibition or something like that i want to say and mm. i at that point in time i thought you know what i don't if i go around yelling justice 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 i think they're that the book is right i don't think they're going to hear me they're going to want to put on their boxing gloves and say i'm right and you're wrong and so the the best way to go about it was to bring people together and to make a point without blatantly making a point yeah To show it and to Mm -hmm. question it and to investigate it because with your traumatic brain injury and in fact, you said you had a limp, but what are your, you said you had some physical disabilities?
1: Yeah, look, I still have um, partial paralysis in areas of my body, which I don't consciously recognize. Mm -hmm. But it's when I do things like, you know, when I fall over, I always fall over to the left. Um, My Mm -hmm. left side's weaker than my right side. I had eyeliner tattooed on at one stage, and this is about 15 years ago, and I could hardly feel the left side, but could feel every pinprick on the right side. Oh, wow. Um, When I'm really tired, I I may be now. Um, I smile crooked because I've got um, some residual paralysis in the left side of my face. My pain tolerance is incredibly high in some areas, which can be dangerous. And I go through some of that in the book that, you know, how I've ended up in hospital um, in emergency because I couldn't feel pain. Well, one mm. of the reasons was I couldn't feel pain and it nearly killed me. Wow. Again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there, there are some long-term impacts on not just the sort of short-term memory, fatigue, concentration, those mm-hmm. sorts of things. That are a struggle every day, but there's ways around it and ways to manage it, and yeah. that's that's what I do.
0: I think for me, because mine's chronic pain at the end, and of course the limitation and range of motion and all that good stuff is mm. remember is pacing is so important. Yeah, um, and not getting mad at myself about it, just being like, "Well, today's a, a nap day." <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's a part of acceptance, you know, and it, it, it takes quite a while to move through those because when you get a disability, you go through a grief process as well for those things that you weren't able to do or you're not able to do any longer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, that altered reality, as I keep saying, you know, it's um, there is a a grief process around that and getting to that acceptance stage where you can now sort of go, well, you know, this is the way it is today, and that's okay, so I'm going to listen to my body. That's huge because, you know, if if you weren't at that stage, you'd be fighting it and potentially doing yourself more harm than good.
0: Yeah, quality of life really sucked when I didn't do (laughs) more miserable often than not and you know i forget where my question was leading so i'm just going to move on to the next one
1: (laughs) (laughs) because
0: we're having a great conversation anyway (laughs) but uh so now you're you're also caring for your mom who has cancer
1: that's right yeah so mom was diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer about three and a half years ago I didn't have any choice in these stubborn genes, Angela. I got them both (laughs) from both sides, from both parents, very, very stubborn. So she was pretty much advised to tidy her up for her affairs three and a half years ago. And um, she's still probably fitter than most 72-year-olds, 71-year-olds. Oh, wow. (laughs) But, yeah, she is, uh, the treatment hasn't worked uh, to get her into any sort of remission. So she's in a clinical trial now and you know we're hoping that that will give us some life extension but yeah she's going through some challenges now
0: oh that's hard yeah that's just hard
1: and yeah she's lucky to have you we've moved in together so you know i can i can help out and yeah now, how
0: is that with the, it's almost, it's not really a role reversal, but I know sometimes that happens. I mean, as far as you're taking care of her, not that there's a parental role reversal.
1: Do you see? Do you no, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, it is. The, the, the tables are kind of turning in that it's my turn to sort of take care of her now. Mm-hmm. And as, as her disease progresses, you know, more so. But look she's still she's still a ama- yeah, she's amazing. she's so resilient and look she's been a great mo- role model for resilience for me. She's you know had a lot of challenges in her life herself, which you know I saw her overcome as a child. She taught me an incredible work ethic, which is why I had my first part-time job at 12 years old and <laughs> so yeah, we're lucky to have each other and we've got, Got a nice house where, you know, she's basically, we got downstairs and I've got upstairs. So we have our own space, but can still be there for each other. So it's ideal.
0: Now, earlier you had talked about how, I mean, some of the things you said, like when they wanted to take her off, you off of the ventilator and it's like, well, you don't know my daughter, those statements. And mm-hmm. were those normal statements that are things that you got to hear that, that your mom believed in you to that extent as, as you grew up? Or was that more noticeable or what, from what you remember, like later after the injury saying, absolutely not, I I'd believe in her or did, yeah, it seems like you just knew yeah. she believed in you, but I, I want to know how yeah. you knew that.
1: Well, look, mum and I have a fairly special and unique relationship because my father died when I was three years old and she was left in a, a foreign country, basically um, with no access to single mother's benefits or anything like that. So she had to work two or three jobs to bring me up. It was so that's pretty much been just her and I all along. So we're really close. Mm -hmm. And when the doctors said, you know, these negative prognosis suggested turning life support off, she was like, no, you don't know my daughter. She's strong, she's stubborn. And I don't accept that. So she refused to sign any organ donation forms or any, have any part of that conversation. Yeah. And do you
0: think hearing those stories and her telling you of how those things went, do you think that helped you in your recovery in some ways?
1: Oh, look, I didn't really learn about that for some years after. Mm-hmm. And through writing the book, It's given me, a, I guess, a deeper appreciation of what mum went through because we had those conversations to go into more depth about her experience going through all that as a mother, as a carer. And, yeah, it was really, I mean, it was quite traumatic for her to go back through all of that. But I guess for me it was cathartic. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I said, I had a deeper, I now have a deeper appreciation of just how hard mum fought for me during that you know, critical time and afterwards with I had rehabilitation. I mean, because the accident was in New Zealand, they have a different insurance system over there called accident compensation, where mm. it doesn't matter if you're injured in a car accident, a, a work accident or just a haphazard accident, it's all covered by the same system and it's uh, automatic. It's a no-fault oh.
0: system.
1: Okay. So... I had rehab right from the bed. I didn't have to wait to sue anybody or any rubbish like that. I had occupational therapy, physiotherapy, uh, hydrotherapy, psychology, speech therapy. You know, it was was really amazing. You know, some of the things, some of the more alternative things she had to fight for, like massage therapy, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were also spiritual healers. I'm not joking. She tried everything.
0: Wow! How much? um, I was just thinking. I received a. My sister is a massage therapist, and uh, she, in fact, she sent me a note that uh, massage therapists are considered alternative medical practitioners Mm. now in California. So the Department of Public Health has now decided, uh, which I think is great, because although I can't tolerate touch. Uh, she does work with a lot of people who have chronic pain, and it, my, from my perspective, it with COVID especially was why would you take away the chronic pain patient's ability to relieve pain? Because if you take that massage therapy away that there's a higher likelihood they're going to end up in the ER because they're um, miserable and we're yeah. trying to keep them out of the ER. So this made no sense to me and so I was trying to give her those arguments and I think she wrote letters and stuff but okay. Um, yeah, I just I I'm one of those. I think humans are amazing and yes, people drive me nuts sometimes, but <laughs> I really think that the world, does, that everyone gets to have this complex experience of being a human. So, yes. um, and to not, we we all suffer anyway. So that if we can alleviate that suffering, like your app is, is going to help people to not suffer as much, hopefully, So good news for California. Now massage therapists are alternative medical practitioners. So
1: yeah. Okay. That's good. That's great.
0: It's amazing. Like the things that COVID has brought about, right? Yeah. Um, My perspective is now a lot of people know what it's like to become disabled, if you will, because Mm -hmm. they've been quarantined to their home. They're stuck. I mean, I don't know in in Australia, like I was telling you about the caregivers. So for instance, the guide, the Medicare guidelines say Mm. that, you know, I can go to, they can take me to the doctor, they can take me to the grocery store and I can go to religious services for a short period of time. There's nothing in there that says mental health. There's nothing in there that says anything like that. And so you kind of have to fight for it and say, wait, hold on, I'm human. But then we don't see the disabled people out and about in the community and then you wonder why when they are out people look they give they look because they haven't seen it because now it's new
1: yeah yeah but even a, the COVID sort of situation, like I know here in Australia, it brought about some really significant changes that weren't designed for people with disability but actually were a huge advantage to people with disability. For example, the uh, Westfield Shopping Centres, which are you know, a whole brand of their own, mm-hmm. they put together something where people could shop online at a Westfield Shopping Centre from any store and you know some Westfield Shopping Centres, there'd be 100 stores least and so you can do your shopping online at any of the stores in a westfield shopping center and pay for it online and then drive in to the car park and someone loads it into the car park for you
0: oh that's awesome
1: how amazing is that
0: yeah yeah because it's so hard when you can't walk far Mm. to go there and get it like my kids every once in a while you know with they go shopping sometimes it's either take we have a little trifold Fishing chair, if you will, we'll take that. Or if the, if it's if I think it might be a long time, because my oldest loves to just meander around, we'll take the wheelchair and I'll walk. And you know, I used to be embarrassed, you know, when people would see me walking, <laughs> it was the <laughs> wheelchair following me. <laughs> and I decided chances are they're probably cheering me on and if not that's their problem but the story that works for me is they're cheering me on.
1: <laughs> yeah, fair enough.
0: <laughs> I mean I don't know if you had to do that also with kind of the story you told yourself when you were healing from everything that happened.
1: Yeah look it was it was just so much of that holding on to the there was hope that something else was possible. And just through those small steps, you know, my first foray back into sort of any sort of employment was a couple of hours of work in a library, just stacking bookshelves, which was great for my concentration. I can't say that I enjoyed the work, but it was something, you know, it was a start. And then the next job was filing, you know, filing in an office, um, a medical office, actually my massage therapist's office.
0: Oh, wow. And
1: so I'd go in after school a couple of days a week just for a couple of hours and do all their filing. And and that was another progression because it involved a social environment where you could talk to people. And, you know, for any sort of injury, those small steps of success are the building blocks for more.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's so yes. important and not being punished in a way because of it. Like some of the, for me i couldn't under i knew i couldn't use my hands i didn't understand why my mind wasn't valued because i could train i could have sat and trained people i could have managed people there was so much i could have done but instead it was well i'm sorry you can't go back to work so we're letting you go. And the emotional devastation that comes the tra that trauma, right? Mm. Was so devastating because now I felt like I had no value and couldn't, you know, I'm injured. I'm in pain all the time. Now on top of it, I have no value. I'm a single mom of two young girls. I think they were six and eight. Mm. And so I spent months crying and then the only way I was able to make it through was to clearly say, I'm going to be the best mom I can be. And that's how I identified myself. So back in October, when the one company said, well, we can't, you can't take your kids to school, you can't take them to, you know, I couldn't provide for their basic, basic needs. Mm. Then I became angry. And I was like, hold on, something's wrong. And just, you know, and in and in the United States, basically you become sequestered as a hostage in your own home if you're following those national guidelines. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's appropriate. For the simple reason that I'm injured, I'm on house arrest.
1: Yeah. No, yeah, no.
0: Right. What sort of work did you do before all this, Angela? What? So I did a lot, but I was in the medical field when it happened. Before that, I'd been a mortgage broker. I also worked in commercial property management, truck body manufacturing, banking. Uh, I was the president of a local chamber, started, you know, a a village enhancement committee. So I was a pretty active person.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And, you know, with all those uh, different skills, you know, many of them relating to customer service. And mm -hmm. you could be a a trainer, a trainer of customer service. and yeah.
0: That's what I thought. That's why I didn't understand. So it's, I'm fascinated to hear that what is happening in Australia is much different than what is happening here. And that it seems like you, in the environment you're in, you're looking for how, where is another value that we can use? Where is something? They've got to have something. Mm. Let's find it and let's teach them how to use it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And look, there are different systems. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there are insurance systems. We have NDIS insurance system, which is only a few years old here in Australia, and it's specifically for disability issues. Okay. So it's a funding body that helps with support at home and all those other branches of that, you know, support workers that come in or interventions that may be needed to help cross some of those injury barriers. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's fantastic. You know, we here in Australia, you know, they don't call us the lucky country for no reason. Right. (laughs) And I do on the brain injury websites on Facebook, the groups and so forth. I so often read how people are trapped in a situation because, Of insurance and lack of insurance and and things. And yeah, people are basically hamstrung because of it. And that's not fair.
0: It's not. And I think it comes down to that basic human right. Although there's an injury there doesn't mean I have no value. So how Mm. do we find that value? And how do we use that value to better the world?
1: Yeah, because you don't want those legislative frameworks you know that enable the modifications you know workplace modifications and so forth to just be lip service there has to be a substantial underlying action right
0: yeah and because like I was saying about the caregiving companies I've had caregiving companies for almost 10 years Mm. and of that I only had the one that ever came in and said oh no 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 you cannot absolutely you absolutely cannot do that and when they did that it i knew it was wrong but mm. then i realized they were using those guidelines they yeah. were using the guidelines for maximum so instead of looking at it as a minimum they're looking at it as this is all we will do
1: the reality could have been that person was scared of heights and didn't want to get on a ladder and so they're going to use the legislation
0: yeah, no, it was the regional people that came in and then multiple caregivers with that particular company.
1: All right. So they were, or, all, yeah, they program. just didn't,
0: yeah, they only wanted to. So basically my, from my perspective, I was treated like a dog, if you will, or a thing, I'm going to feed you, bathe you, you know, do the bare minimum and that's it. And yeah, mm-hmm. that uh, certainly didn't, help with self-esteem or anything and I but ultimately humanely I knew it was wrong
1: yeah and you had enough challenges without you know an unnecessary challenge like that
0: yeah yeah and I couldn't imagine what if that what about the other people with this company and then I learned about the kids You know, I learned about that there's, so there's laws that help disabled parents in the States and there are laws and in California, and there are laws that help disabled children. There's nothing there to protect the child of a disabled parent though. So I can get support. Mm. I can't get anything for my normal child because she's not disabled. Mm -hmm. So then that neglect thing I was talking about earlier that neglect thing comes in then I get in trouble for neglect because I can't fulfill my basic duties when there's someone literally sitting here that's capable of helping me do that that task
1: yeah, that's crazy
0: it just made no sense to me so that's where a lot of this came from that's how this all got started so I so part of my part of it is legislative Mm-hmm. And uh, so while I've got a group of us working on that, all volunteers, right, <laughs> right now, because that's how it is. And then the podcast to bring mm. everyone together to recognize that having a disability doesn't change that I'm human. Mm. It doesn't change that I struggle. Uh, that even if you look capable, mm. doesn't mean you don't also have similar struggles. Yeah, yeah. You know, mine just look different mm. and mine's just a little more visible.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's the, so much the case with mental health as well. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't see often. It's not yeah. obvious mental health issues that people live with and struggle with, but it doesn't mean that they're not there. Right,
0: and that's really hard, even for me. I don't know about you, but, you know, I find myself out in the community sometimes. And sometimes I forget that other people are just having bad days mm-hmm. or bad moments. Yeah. And I make the snap judgment and I decide it's true. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> we, we all do it, right? <laughs> oh, look, we're human.
1: We're human.
0: Judgmental. Yeah. So but- how do we get people to
1: remember, to not do that. Well, look, I think the only thing we are actually capable of controlling our, is ourselves. We have no control of what other people do, think, their actions, true, et cetera. And I think the sooner that we realize that it's, it's you know, how we react to a situation is our choice. We can be a victim in our lives or we can be a pilot in our lives pilot chooses the destination they set the course they they know the steps or they plan the steps to get to the destination right uh, you know we can use so much of our experiences to be an excuse not to try or as a reason as fuel to try
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know i think that when we we really embrace that within ourselves and you know you're doing things like meditation and you know and that's great for the brain and great for mental health and and you it, great for creativity because the podcast came about <laughs> through meditation yeah yeah <laughs> you know so you know you made a choice to actually do something positive for yourself in that space and i think the more people that can do that, can, that can look at those enablers and those tools and resources that can enable us to take that next step in progress. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd all be better off for it.
0: Yeah. So three things you would want to let the audience know that can help them with that hope and that dream. Okay. Well,
1: that's why I wrote Holding On To Hope. <laughs> finding the new you after a traumatic brain injury. So that, um, you know, it is based on my own story, Mm -hmm. but it's also written with my allied health hat on. So there's lots of tools, resources, tips and tricks to manage not only for the injured person, but for their family, caregivers, health professionals. There's 17 reviews on Amazon from a cross-section of that community people with brain injury, carers, and health professionals, and they all they gave it five stars, all of, all nice. of them. So, also, the memory management app that I have coming out, I think that is going to be a game changer for so many people. It's, I've been utilizing it myself for the last month, just trialing it and, you know, right. so we can pick up the bugs and things in it before we launch it, yeah. and it's amazing. It really awesome. is. Awesome. And so, yeah, just go to my website, www.holdingontohope.com.au and you'll find information about everything that I'm offering. I've got mindset and memory boosting workshops coming up in the next week. Um, That's a a series of three workshops that basically people can work through. You watch one workshop at a time. First one's on mindset. The second one's on brain health goal setting. The third one's on memory management strategies. And yeah, that's, i just want to help people reach their highest potential. That's the whole goal. So stay stubborn and stay curious. (laughs)
0: Absolutely. Is that what I'm hearing?
1: (laughs) I love it. Inspiration equal enabling. There you go. There you go.
0: Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. My
1: pleasure, Angela. Congratulations on getting this all off the ground. If you want
0: to share your relatively damaged story of struggle and how you found hope, visit us at damagedparents.com and complete the contact form. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Relatively Damaged by Damaged Parents. We've really enjoyed talking to Nicole about how she recovered from traumatic brain injury and how she copes with the residual damage. We especially liked when she gave us hope. Check out her book, Holding On To Hope. To unite with other damaged people, connect with us on TikTok. Look for Damaged Parents. This podcast was sponsored in part by Arches Audio. We'll be here next week, still relatively damaged. See you then.